so if you want to close your eyes, you can do. If you don't want to, that's okay. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can come together and celebrate you and worship you, that we can hear all about how good you are and how great you're being through your, um, your saints in the world, the ones that you send out to help uh, those who are in most need. And just as we lean into one of your uh, parables, Jesus, this morning, I pray you'd send your Holy Spirit to really speak to us, to convict us, to bless us, to motivate us to action in this place. Amen. Good. So hopefully you have some leaflets there, some notes to keep you up to date and, and follow with. Um, we're going to go through this together this morning and enjoy it, I hope. So lately we've had some uh, prophetic words being spoken over the church. You may or may not be aware of them, um, but they included some instructions. And one of the instructions was to be prepared. And uh, we're doing a series called Be Prepared at the moment. And uh, we're going through some of the things that we were told we should be prepared for. And one of the things that we were told we should be prepared for was to um, be ready for people to come in through, the, through those doors at the back there who look, behave, and are generally different from us. Um, some groups were mentioned in the prophetic words, the, were, which were addicts, the homeless, and ex-prisoners. And uh, we were told to be ready for them. And that prophecy that came through explained how, we need, how this will make us feel uncomfortable and that we'll need to become more generous with our time, our money, our possessions, and become softer, kinder, and more loving. I believe it was Claudine that brought that particular part of the word. And the words that were spoken um, over the last few months have shaped this series. And as I say today, we're looking at loving those who are different from us. And so to do this, we're going to open up Luke chapter 10. Um, so you can turn there if you've got a Bible, or you can follow it um, in... Oh, no, it's not going to come from the screen. Find a Bible or find someone with to share with, and, uh, and we'll read it through together. But uh, just to give you the context, the author of the book was called Luke, you may have guessed, uh, and he was a doctor, and he had some excellent Greek. He wrote some of the best Greek we have in the Bible there, and he spent years gathering eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life from people who actually met him in order to write his book. And we're going to pick up the story in chapter 10, um, and it's a time where Jesus has started his public ministry, he's gathered some followers, he's had some, done some wonderful teaching, some amazing miracles, some, shown some supernatural compassion for sinners, and in the last couple of chapters, he sent out his apostles, 12 of those, and 72 other disciples to heal people and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And they've come back, and they've returned with joy, because they've seen many healings and supernatural things. And while this has been taking place, Jesus has exposed some self-righteousness and pride in the hearts of the strictest adherents to the Jewish law, the Pharisees or the religious leaders or religious scholars or lawyers, you might read them as in your Bible. And they're the ones who consider themselves to be holier than thou and uh, generally good. That's what they think. And they don't like this paradox of a miracle-working uber teacher making the outrageous claim to be the Messiah, the long-awaited one, only to spend all his time serving and eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. They don't like it that that's the kind of thing he does. And so one of these scholars, and I'll, I'll call him the scholar throughout just to uh, minimize the amount of words I need to use to describe him, he comes up and encounters Jesus in Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37, and he comes prepared. So let's read the story together. Luke 10, 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, 
he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Amen. It's a well-known parable. And we're going to dig into it together this morning using following headings. Withholding love, responding with love, and radical love. So let's start with withholding love. So to look back at that story, an expert in the law, the scholar, shows up and decides to test Jesus. He wants to trap him. Why does he want to do it? Because Jesus is always welcoming people who defy the law, who disobey the law, and he hates that. He keeps the law. Why can't everybody else is what kind of goes through his head. And these scholars, they considered those who disobeyed the law to be sinners rather than themselves. And so he eyes Jesus with suspicion, with caution. He wants to trap him. He calls him teacher rather than Lord, demonstrating that he doesn't actually believe he's the son of God. He thinks he's just this kind of teacher. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved is what he's saying. And Jesus replies with two questions. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The expert then quotes a summary of the Old Testament law. Rather than getting the whole thing out and reading all 613 laws or however many there might be, he quotes the summary. And generally, they know that if you abide by this summary, you've kind of got them covered. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And essentially, he's saying, honor God. Put him first and honor people as you would honor yourself. And and Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And you might hear those verses and you might think, oh, that sounds simple. Yeah, yeah, sure. We could do that. We could do that. Actually, if you pause and think about the, the weight of them, well, actually, it starts to kind of sink in. You see, the law describes uh, this great task. It is essentially a way of life, but not a way to life. And Jesus knows this, and, he, and the, law, the law he knows calls this religious scholar, this scholar, to do an impossible task. 
tasks, something that is impossible for human beings to really achieve wholeheartedly. And he's not finished yet. Verse 29 reads like this. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And I guess I imagine in my mind him leaning closer, kind of scrutinizing him a little bit. Go on, Jesus, tell me the answer. Give me the specifics I need to know. You see, he wants an explanation for his relatively simple question, because as you can probably tell from the speed in which the scholar has responded, he knows the summary of the law off by heart. He knows the law. He's a, he's a lawyer, like he knows it. And he knows that actually this is really difficult. But in his response, in this additional kind of question, he reveals the main premise of his life, this scholar, which is being virtuous, doing stuff. You see, he knows that it's an impossible task to fulfill the law. He knows it's really difficult. And so he pushes back at Jesus. He wants clarification. He wants a list of things that are reasonable and doable. And I'm, I'm sometimes that kind of person. Like, I like a list. I like to go through and done that, I've done that, I've done that. Even on a Sunday morning, like when I'm running a meeting like this, I'll, I'll do a tick box exercise, make sure I've got my green bag to welcome visitors, make sure I've got the ABs all sorted and blah, blah. I like that kind of thing. That kind of works for me, but it doesn't work when it comes to the law. You see, he doesn't get a list. Even though he's searching for the minimum standard for salvation, even though he wants to know, what, what, can I, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? That's his question. He's saying, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Surely, surely that doesn't mean just anybody. Surely there's some specifics here. Come on, be reasonable, Jesus. Let's sort this out. He's kind of saying, who can I withhold love from but still receive salvation? Perhaps he thinks that Jesus is going to list some people he doesn't need to be a neighbor to. And I can kind of see where he's coming from in this regard. And it's a really revealing parable, and it's a really revealing human way of thinking, isn't it? And you might be able to think yourself, perhaps, of some people or groups that you don't particularly want to show love to or love as you would love yourself. And it might be something uh, as kind of surface level, perhaps, as a rival football team. And I, now I'm a Crystal Palace supporter, uh, and, and I know that Brighton fans are not the closest friends of Crystal Palace supporters. So there's that rival there. I might think, oh, it's, I couldn't get on with them, possibly. We have such different views if, if football was a really significant part of my life, which actually... It's not. I used to go when I was a kid, but not anymore. It's, it's not as significant as it used to be. But there's that kind of, oh, don't get on with them. Couldn't possibly be fa- friends with them. They're fans of a different team to mine. You might find it hard to love people who are particularly loud or offensive or vile people in your class at school. If you're among our youth group, there might be people who just think, oh, I couldn't possibly. That's really difficult. Or at your workplace, there might be that person who just, you know, there's tension. You just... You find it hard to, to love them. It might be even people who have a different political view to you. That, you might find it really hard to see their perspective, to show love to them. It could be the overtly racist, the classist. It could be any of those groups of people. And even recently, you might have seen this played out a bit in the media. So when the England footballers play football, they were racially abused by some fans and the people of uh, Britain, their disgust was all over social media, their sadness at the behavior. And I have to confess, I read that and I thought, do you know what, it's not hard to imagine myself withholding love from people who behave that way. I don't, I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want to love them because I believe they're different from myself. So that's uh, me being kind of honest with you there. And it's, it's actually quite easy 
to get into this line of thinking. Easier to withhold love from people who are different from us than you might think. But it actually even happens in more subtle ways, and we might even joke about these kind of things, like maybe geographical divides, hardy northerners and softy southerners. But behind the understanding, or behind all that is kind of a belief that humanly it is actually too hard to love everybody, particularly those who are different from you. And going back to our scholar, he knows that the law that he loves, that he has followed, that he cherished, is actually calling him to do something beyond his reach as a human being. And so he wants a satisfactory answer from Jesus. And in his wonderful way, Jesus, rather than offering a method for only loving certain people at certain times in certain ways, says, that reminds me of a story. And he tells a parable. And in case you don't know what a parable is, I recently read a book by Andy McCulloch uh, called Global Humility, where he hits out three quick definitions of a parable. He describes it as a Trojan horse, a kind of story that can go into someone's heart undetected and then bring devastation from the inside, power without direct confrontation. He describes it as, secondly, a TARDIS, and Toby Mills were like this. He describes it as a TARDIS, seemingly plain on the outside. Small and insignificant as a story, but once you get into it, it's a vast landscape. Or a parable could be perceived perhaps as a house. The listener is invited in to sit inside and take on the perspective on offer from within. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're getting within the parable. You see, parables do not offend, but they're full of offense. Jesus uses this parable to illustrate what responding to love looks like. And that's our next heading, responding with love. He said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Jesus describes this journey that his listeners would have been familiar with. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho was a great big descent of about 507 meters full of rocky outcrops, caves, boulders, and it was well known, this stretch of road, for being a dangerous route. And there was even a section on this road between Jerusalem and Jericho that was called the Road of Blood, infamous for robberies, a dangerous place. So he's describing a real place with a fictional story. And the first person that finds the man who's been beaten, stripped, and robbed is a highly regarded figure, a priest, a descendant of Aaron from the Old Testament with regular duties in the temple who looks once passes by. Next, a Levite, part of the tribe of Levi, not a descendant of Aaron, but a person who would have assisted the priests. Both law-abiding people, both ritually clean, both perceived to be good, both responsible for helping the poor and giving out alms, and yet both walk by, both move on swiftly. And why do they do that? Because they're smart. They see that the man is alive still and bleeding out, which means the robbers must be nearby. They won't have gone far if he's still alive now. And rather than responding in love, they respond with fear, the fear of being attacked themselves, the fear of becoming unclean, the fear, perhaps, of being late and humiliated. And this may have happened to you before. It's definitely happened to me, where you're driving along the road, perhaps, or you're maybe being driven, who knows, and you notice a broken down vehicle or some people trying to push a vehicle into a safe place 
And just for a moment, you think, shall I stop? And your reasoning kicks in and the excuses arise. And again, a very human thing happens to you. You think like I do, they'll be okay. They don't need me. Someone else will help them. Or, ah, if I help, I'm going to be late for that meeting. Or, ah, they're probably a Brighton fan. They probably deserve it. But it comes in, it creeps in, the excuses arise. Now, it's really easy as well in this moment to feel guilty and defensive. And initially, that's what I kind of felt, um, I guess. When I was reading this, I thought, do you know what? I've done that before. And we need to recognize here that actually causing me to feel guilty is not really, is not at all actually Jesus' intention at all, because the guilt doesn't take you where he wants you to go. Instead, he introduces a fourth character in the story, the Samaritan. Now, in the historical context, there's something really important we need to know about Jews and Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans were enemies. And just to give you a bit of background, they were both perceived each other as blasphemous and oppressive because about 700 years before Jesus came along, um, there's a story of a number of Jews marrying Gentiles and moving to an area called Samaria, And they live in proximity to one another, have similar roots historically, but are divided on a fundamental level. They are enemies. They don't appreciate each other at all. And the scholar in the passage who's listening would have known this and would have considered their differences to be completely vast. And when Jesus tells the story, he himself, in the previous uh, chapter, has been rejected by a Samaritan village. He was going to go there on his way to Jerusalem, But they told him not to come. And his disciples, James and John, said, they've rejected you, Jesus. Shall we call fire down on them and destroy it? And Jesus goes, no, stop. Don't do anything. He rebukes them, which is telling at this point as we get this parable next. But in the parable, the made-up story, a Samaritan responds with love. In the face of danger, not fear. He has compassion or pity the same word used for when Jesus is deeply moved by someone suffering. He looks twice, not once. He physically touches the bleeding body. He heals the wounds and pours on oil and wine. He puts him on his own donkey. He places a stranger where he should be and puts himself where the stranger should be. And he takes him to a refuge, a safe place. Pays for his care. Over two days' wages or more. And by telling the story, Jesus is emphasizing that respon- the fact that responding with love is meant to be costly. He wants his disciples to get radical costliness, where we share burdens of others. And for me, I don't know about, that, about you, but when I hear that, I, my mind, when it thinks about giving beyond and going beyond the pale, going beyond the norm to help and, and give and pass away more of myself, sometimes my mind goes, oh, you can't possibly afford to. You can't possibly afford to give more money. You can't possibly afford to give more time to that or that person who's in need or that cause or that charity. And it turns out I'm not the only one who has thought this. A famous theologian, American theologian, um, responds to the question, or the statement, I should say, of I can't afford to help people in need. His name's Jonathan Edwards. And uh, this was a really helpful quote to, to grasp, I think, what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Jonathan Edwards said, Remember Galatians 6, verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, 
And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. In many cases, we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. We should be willing to suffer with our neighbor and to take part of his burden on ourselves. Otherwise, how is that rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled? If we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? And Jonathan is right. When people like me say in their mind, I can't afford to give more, they're really saying, I can't afford to give without it burdening me, without it hurting my living standards, without it really making me radically sacrifice. And Jesus says, yes, that's right. It's radical discipleship. It's radical love for even those who are your enemies. Now, Jesus is pointing us to this in radical discipleship. He's pointing us to that. He's pointing us to loving those who are different from us and helping us recognize that it's meant to cost us time, money, possessions. It's meant to push us beyond our natural capacity. And I got a summary from a guy called Tim Keller, excellent preacher. He summarizes this by saying, if you can afford to give, then you're not giving enough. Now, when I heard that, it made me uncomfortable. And I remembered the prophecy. It will make you uncomfortable, is what we heard. And I am (laughs) about this when I read it. It makes us uncomfortable. It's radical love when we respond like the Samaritan, which brings us to our third heading, radical love. Jesus is brilliant. If you haven't read a gospel uh, start to finish, I encourage you, read about him, learn about him, enjoy him, enjoy his jokes, enjoy his uh, poignancy, enjoy the way he cuts to the heart with stories like this. You see, the parable unravels the scholar's thinking. And the final verses draw us to its key, the key to the whole story, where Jesus places the scholar in the story. Verse 36 and 37 say, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. The key to the parable is where Jesus puts the scholar in the story. Because if Jesus had made him the hero, if he'd made the scholar, the person who risked their life, gave their money, their time and care to the person injured on the road, then he would have just scoffed at Jesus. He would have said, ah, Jesus, no way. You don't inspire me. You're ridiculous. Help my enemy. Help a Samaritan. No. I would have just rode over him a few times, like to make sure. That's what I would have done. Get out of it, Jesus. No self-respecting Jew would have helped him. But instead, Jesus places the scholar in the position of the man on the road, the one in need, the one battered, bruised, bleeding out, helpless. And Jesus does it very deliberately. He wants the scholar to imagine that he is in the place of someone who is in no position to save themselves, the one whose only hope is an act of free grace, the one who undeservedly is helped by someone considered to be an enemy. And the scholar can't even bring himself to say the word 
Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to answer Jesus' final question precisely. I can just imagine him through clenched teeth going, the one who showed him mercy, and kind of turning away and walking off. And what does it remind us of? What does this particular key remind us of? Well, the radical love shown by our God. The radical love shown by the God of the Bible to save sinners from certain death. Sinners who are God's enemies until they are redeemed by faith in Jesus who lies, who lay his life down on the cross for us. And it's amazing when you dig into these parables, when you start annotating and reading and reading and reading and, and looking through. And when I was doing this, I couldn't help but see Jesus in the Samaritan in so many ways. And I just want to share a few parallels with you because they're quite striking. You see, Jesus, he looks twice at sinners, not once. From heaven, where he was comfortably with his father, he saw a world in trouble, a world full of human beings that needed saving, and he didn't pass by or ignore them. Jesus came to earth. He physically touched people on this planet. He experienced everything we experience as a human being, and so he can identify with us when we're hurting, when we're in pain. Jesus heals our wounds. He pours on oil and wine. He binds up the brokenhearted, and he does it with the ultimate compassion and love. Jesus puts us on his own donkey, so to speak. When he places himself on the cross, Jesus puts us where, puts himself where we should be and puts us where he should be. He puts us righteous and restored with God when we put our faith in him while dying on that cross, alone and humiliated, taking our sin. Jesus, like the Samaritan, takes us to a refuge, a safe place once our faith is in him, to a blessed assurance of heaven, knowing where we go when we die. How many people that you know know where they're going when they die? Possibly just the people in this room or in your life group. And it's a really powerful question to ask people. Where are you going? Do you know? Well, Jesus knows because he leads us there. He leads us to eternal life. Our eternal home in heaven is with him. And he pays for the care, does the Samaritan. He pays two days wages or more, a lot of money back in that day. And Jesus, in parallel, pays for our sins and the way for us to inherit eternal life by making us sons and daughters of the king. Heirs. And this is really where the power of the parable hit me because at the end, the scholars question, what must I do to inherit eternal life is exposed for what it is, which essentially is a contradiction because by virtue of being an heir, do you inherit something, not by doing anything. And we can only become heirs if we're adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus. And it's by doing that that we become heirs who need to do nothing more in order to receive eternal life. And we know that only by becoming a new creation in Jesus will we receive a new heart, a new pers perspective, a new capacity to give without concern for the cost, like Jesus did, like the Samaritan did. And we see through the scriptures that it's only by experiencing radical love, through hearing and responding to the gospel, that we'll be free to ab and able to extend radical love to those who are different from us. I don't know if you've ever tried to change your own heart by your own efforts. It's really hard <laughs> to make that come about. 
And that's because it's not designed to work that way, I believe. Because it takes an experience, I believe, to have a change of heart. And once you experience the radical love of Jesus, you can't help but be changed. So, in conclusion, we've been led to consider by this parable, withholding love. Who do we find it hard to show love to? Responding with love, even toward our enemies, and radical love, no matter what the cost. And so what can we do by way of application, perhaps? Maybe we sound a little bit like the scholar at this point. What do I need to do? Tell me. Well, in order to enjoy the benefits of the cross, you need to put your faith in Jesus if you're not a follower of Jesus here with us this morning, if you've never placed your faith in him. That's the first thing. But if you are a uh, believer here, then actually to extend radical love, we can look at some ways that it might actually cost us. And it might cost us relationally or emotionally or perhaps even financially. And I've just I've put down some ways of application, uh, some things you could do, not things you have to do, um, in order to, to take this into the real world for you today. And the first one is to rub shoulders with people who are different from you. Get used to what we need to be prepared for. Um, come to some of the Engage events, and if you're wondering what they are, I'm going to talk about them for the, over the next two weeks, just in a short three-minute kind of introduction, but we're going to raise some, get some events going where you can actually do this. The next thing is have a pancake open house. Uh, we did this the other day. We just said to our neighbors, uh, we're going to do pancakes between half nine and half 11. Come if you want. If you don't come, that's okay. We'll do it again next month, and you can come. And we had some neighbors come around, and they were different from us. And it was a bit weird, because we'd never kind of done that before. But it was really good as well, and it was fun. Uh, Third thing, um, and lots of you will enjoy this, go to the pub. Uh, I also did this uh, unexpectedly the other day. I just went on my own, (laughs) and I I found people that they're there that just wanted to talk. And were just there, the people behind the bar, and I rubbed shoulders with them for a bit. I actually helped you guys with their quiz answers. So, guys from the pub two weeks ago, if you did win the quiz, I want my money. Um, So, (laughs) I don't think they did. But anyway, um, bless them. Or you could um, rub shoulders with people who are different from you by serving on the night shelter with Linda and the team um, in the winter months in December and so on. Next thing is, you could do three random acts of kindness this week, radical acts of kindness. And the last one is be radical. Do something that actually costs you Take some cash, put it in an envelope, pray, and give it to somebody different from you, just saying, Jesus is teaching me to show radical love. No other explanation. There's a suggestion for you. So, uh, again, if you're like me, um, you know by now that actually this isn't possible without God's help, even if you've been saved maybe, I don't know, how, how long have I been saved? 14 years, like me, or longer you know that actually this is something that needs to come back and needs to be vetted into your heart. And so um, we are going to respond just corporately, and perhaps we'll have a a bit of time for worship. I'll hand back to Neil once I uh, have led you in this. But why don't you stand up, and band, you can come and get behind your stands. Now, I was at a a service this week in Catrum, and uh, I went to a, a new service induction, as it were, for a new priest in charge up there. And uh, it really strikes me when I go to different churches, uh, the things that we do differently, they do differently. And one of the things they did in this service was read liturgy. And uh, I read a book called You Charismatic recently and gained a new appreciation for liturgy and the way they do Eucharist and things like that. But one of the things that really struck me in this service was how the new priest in charge completed some liturgy to communicate the fact that he was committed to partnering with God in the task set before him. And if 
you remember the prophetic words from even longer ago. You'll remember the table, the bowls, and the cages. Well, the table that was described had four legs, and one of each leg had a, a word on it, prayer, obedience, commitment, and something else I can't remember, dedication, thank you. And, uh, and that word commitment jumped out at me, and I thought this would be good to do together, and I'm not going to make you go through a whole list of statements and say certain words necessarily, but what I am going to ask is that when I finish praying and say amen, that you respond with me with the following words, with God's help, we will. And that's the only liturgy we're going to do today, just in case anyone's worried about that. <laughs> so I'm going to pray, and at the end we'll say, with God's help, we will. So Father, we do thank you for this parable. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you for your son who spoke it. We thank you for uh, everyone that actually is involved in there who knows they need the love of Jesus and who knows that actually they need an experience. They need to receive God's love in order to be changed from the inside out. And we want to ask for your help as King's Church in this place this morning, Jesus. We come before you and we say, we will need your help to love people who are different from us, to love beyond the pale, to uh, have our bed, their burdens shared with us in many, many ways, be it time, money, or possessions. We will need our hearts expanded. We will need our hearts radically changed by radical love once again. And as we step into this time, as we prepare ourselves, this is a moment where we say, that we want to do it with you, not without you. Because we know we won't be able to manage it if you're not with us. And so for all of these things, will you help us? Amen. And we'll say together, with God's help, we will. Amen. And lastly, before, you, before we worship, before I hand back to Neil, if you are here for the first time and you have heard what I've spoken about today and you want to experience radical love, you want to know Jesus, you want to be saved from hell when you die. You want to be saved from your sins. Well, it's very important that you know that the cost of following Jesus is as described in this parable, is going to cost you to follow him. But if you do want to receive him this morning, uh, I just want to pause for a moment so you can call out to him and say, Jesus, please come into my life. I'm not going to recite a prayer. We're not going to make you say anything you don't want to say or force you to believe anything you don't want to believe. But if you simply want to call out to Jesus for mercy, like the person who was in the road at that time, if you need an act of free grace to save you, then I'm just going to make space for you to say out loud or say in your heart what you want to say to God by way of invitation to him. And then I'll say amen, and we will go into a worship song. I'm going to pause so you can do that now. Amen. If you cried out to Jesus in that moment, come and find me afterwards. We're going to worship. Over to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm.